Welcome to Econoday Unplugged. Each week, our expert team explains the relationship between economic announcements and market reaction. For over 25 years, Econoday has provided value for the investment industry, amassing a comprehensive, machine-readable database of global market events. Econoday provides solutions for macroeconomics, sovereign debt, agricultural commodities and historical data, all delivered by API, XML and HTML. Connect the dots with Econoday. Subscribe to the Econoday Unplugged podcast and go to www.econoday.com to follow market events. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday, 12th of March 2019. As usual, Mark Pender is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. So Friday's surprisingly soft employment report has thrown the proverbial cat amongst the pigeons as far as prospects for US economic expansion are concerned. While for the Brexit saga at long, long last, we pretty well reached make your mind up time. Meanwhile, neither the ECB nor the Bank of Canada is now quite so confident that the economic slowdown at home will be only short-lived. So lots to talk about then. Mm-hmm. Mr. Pender, employment yeah. in February. How can the consensus be? Was it 150,000 short or something? Something like that. But uh, it was, you know, shockingly small at 20,000. But you have to average uh, the months together. And the other mm-hmm. month was shockingly large at uh, 304,000. And the first reading, if we remember back in uh, December was since uh, revised sharply downward that was over 300 as well so there's been a lot of volatility in the in the economic data which isn't going to rest very well with uh, the the statistical agencies because they've been battling for years this question of uh, seasonality and during the winter months and it really does seem to be appearing now we had retail sales uh, yesterday, Monday, and uh, it showed a uh, swing higher from really devastating losses in December, um, really way out of what uh, it, anyone could uh, have expected of the numbers. So there may be, I think we really do have to wait. We have to uh, see how this is going to play out. I don't think the Federal Reserve policymakers are going to be uh, jumping to any conclusions uh, on these numbers, uh, especially we'll have to, I think, get into uh, some of the spring numbers, which are still kind of away because uh, we've been delayed because of the government shutdown, uh, delaying the data. And uh, so the U.S. right now, the economic uh, numbers have definitely been uh, uh, soft. Uh, we got another surprise today. We had the core CPI, which is almost always uh, easily forecast uh, for the first time really since August. Uh, it uh, slowed uh, to a one, uh, 0.1% rise. And uh, even though from t- 02 to 0.1, from 340 4,000 payroll to 20,000 payroll, that core is almost as much of a surprise to forecasters as the the change in the employment report. So we're getting... I've got to ask you on that, Mark. Yeah. Didn't we see a pickup in the the wages number on Friday? And yet inflation is still where it is. Yes. Well, uh, yes. Uh, We saw a 3.4% average hourly earnings, uh, which was uh, above expectation of 0.4% rise on the month. Uh, and these are really at the top 
of the expansion. And really, you know, it's funny, we should talk about this. I don't want to digress too much, Jeremy, but we've been, we've spent the last several years saying what happened to the Phillips curve, you know, what happened to uh, wage inflation, why isn't it in here? But if you look at the unemployment rate, uh, which has been going down, and uh, if you look at uh, average hourly earnings, which is uh, going up uh, uh, over the last 10 years, it makes a nice little X. So it's, uh, they do seem to be um, uh, coming uh, in back in line. Average hourly earnings have accelerated a little bit in, in the recent months, which does uh, uh, help r- r- restore the uh, fundamental supply and demand in the labor market. But if we get a downturn in the uh, labor market, then it's kind of interesting that that would occur at the same time when we might be talking about accelerating wage uh, inflation. Um, but in, in any case, so I think right now uh, the U.S. data is in a wait-and-see mode. We're in a bumpy, turbulent period right now, and we have to just uh, get through this to find out um, where the economy really is. And that will probably be a couple of months from now. So I imagine the Fed is going to kind of go into a holding pattern um, right now. But now, is is it fair to say that you're seeing the same thing uh, in Europe, that you saw volatility on the downside late last year? And now are we seeing volatility on the upside early this year? It's right. It's quite interesting. I mean, just looking at this this period around Christmas time, as you say, some of the, the seasonal adjustment problems they have, you know, looking at the data throughout the course of year, they tend to you know, really coalesce around, around that time. And it's interesting, particularly with regards to, let's take the industrial production data. Now, if you remember, I think on the podcast not so long ago, we were talking about some you know, pretty horrible numbers coming out right across the Eurozone, as far as December was concerned, no doubt of Germany. Um, as far as January goes, though, we've seen pretty well apart from Germany, which we can talk about perhaps a bit later, but you know, looking at Italy, Spain, France, having seen industrial production, production albeit collapse in, um, in the end of last year, we've seen very strong rebounds coming through in January. And exactly the same we know now took place in the UK as well, because we've had the UK industrial production figures out this morning for January. Same pattern down sharply in December, back up again in January. So now whether it is due to you know natural reasons or it's something to do with the fact that uh, the guys who produce the stats can't actually seize the adjust these figures, we really don't know, but it's an interesting pattern. And I suppose if you're an investor, it's got to be something you've got to be aware of and perhaps make you a little bit more cautious about you know, how you interpret the month-on-month data because you really could draw the wrong conclusion. Well, let's talk about German industrial productions, considering it is so important in the global uh, scheme of things. And it, it, that's it, right. I mean, it's well, I was going to say the odd the oddball as far as the Eurozone industrial production figures for January concerned was Germany. Um, France, Italy, Spain all had very good increases. However, Germany saw a 0.8 percent decline. But again, just going back to this thing of putting it into context, um, December was originally reported at down 0.4 in the month. That was revised up to 0.8 percent which tells you at least you, know, you can't trust the initial German first you know, provisional data because they are subject to pretty hefty revision. But even there, we're talking about you know, bit in the opposite direction to the rest of the Eurozone. Still very striking volatility between the months, which again, you know, raises doubts, not just about the quality of the data as it's initially issued, but also whether seasonally adjusting it correctly or not. And so it's certainly the, interesting. 
What's the breakdown in Germany between domestic demand and uh, export demand? Well, one reason it's got to be said, well, we've seen this surprisingly sharp slowdown in Germany. And bear in mind that, you know, they only just avoided by well, effectively a decimal point um, falling into technical recession at the back end of last year is that exports are hugely important to the German economy. In any particular quarter, exports can be worth as much as 50 percent of total output. So because we've seen this slowdown in global trade, it's dis proportionately impacted Germany compared to, let's say, the likes of the US, where obviously you know, the net trade sector is that much smaller. So Germany in particular is very vulnerable to, you know, to swings in global trade. Do you think, though, uh, we, we've had the uh, general central bank uh, move uh, toward neutral uh, over the last uh, couple of months, really, uh, since the Fed in late uh, January. Um, it, and now we're seeing this volatility in the data. Um, I don't think it's going to affect the Federal Reserve, but uh, as far as the global downward pivot that was a very apparent in, in global monetary policy, will this disruption for, and we're taking it from the investor's point of view, of course, will this uh, disruption um, make them think twice about the pivot? Is there now greater uh, a, a greater chance that they'll uh, step back from it and then resume uh, an upward bias? It's, it's hard to say. I think one of the problems with certainly the short-term investors, I suppose by definition they're short-term, so they tend to react uh, very much to the latest figures, even though at the end of the day those figures may not actually be worth the paper they're written on. But I think as far as the central banks are concerned, I mean, I think you're right. We have seen a general reappraisal by central banks about you know, the state of the domestic economy, and invariably when you see you know, statements um, attached to um, the rationale for the latest central bank move, invariably within that we'll see some reference to the fact that the global economy is performing more weakly than they expected. And I suppose we should just mention to listeners, uh, as far as last week was concerned, the ECB, although they didn't make any changes to quantitative easing or interest rates as widely expected, they did, however, come out and change their forward guidance. So previously they have been talking about interest remaining at current levels, which as far as their benchmark is concerned, of course, is zero, uh, through to the end of the summer. Well, they've now extended that through to the back end of this year. And at the same time of interest, which I don't think some people perhaps picked up on, they actually maintained uh, their economic risk assessment. So they moved that down earlier on in the year and they've left it still tilted to the downside, despite the fact they've extended their forward guidance and indeed have also made some other initiatives such as this Teltro, this, this new uh, cheap funding program for banks that they'll be introducing later on this year as well. So that very much reflects their concern. Concern. And just quickly on the Bank of Canada as well, they've been until prior to last week, have been one of the very few of the major central banks essentially still talking interest rates up and it just being a matter of time. Well, now effectively they've taken that out completely. Uh, they've dropped the tightening bias and they're suggesting that rates are pretty well as likely to go down as they are to go up now. Mm. And they revised down their forecast significantly. So I think you know, in broader terms, I think you know, central banks are clearly, they don't look at one, one month's worth of data. Mm -hmm. They put a line through the last three months or so and really really mm -hmm. move on the back of that. Well, and I guess I'm, uh, the hint I'm getting is the risk, I, I mentioned it before, that they have over-anticipating the slowdown. I don't know that this still has to play out. But let's talk about the wild cards now. We have uh, not too much in the uh, U.S.-China trade talks uh, developments there. We're getting a lot of developments in Brexit. Let me ask you well, just one question on Brexit, and that is what, pro what proportion of the parliament would not mind having a hard Brexit? 
Um, well, I'd, it's hard to put a number on it, but certainly I think it's 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 almost it's it's, it's safe to say that uh, the majority of Parliament does not want at least a no deal. Now, a hard Brexit could be defined as you know a trade deal, which perhaps isn't as soft as some people would want in terms of the ultimate relationship we end up with the European Union. But in terms of you know, a no deal Brexit, I think it's it's pretty well certain that if there were a vote on that tonight, and in fact we could see a vote on this tomorrow, um, it could. But if there were one this evening, um, then it would clearly be rejected. So but the Brexit, March 29th, the March 29th date is dead. Not yet. In fact, I'll just give a quick up to update on Brexit because as, as we speak, there's an awful lot going on because there is a key vote taking place uh, this evening on Tuesday. Um, I mean, essentially, it really does all boil down to today's second meaningful vote in the UK Parliament, which is just a few hours away. So this then is the last chance to get an agreement on the withdrawal bill in the House of Commons before the Brexit date on the 29th of March. Now, the pound, as we know, has been hugely volatile. And yesterday, almost took off when it was heard that Mrs May was flying back out to Europe um, and the speculation was that she was going to come out with some announcement about revised Irish backstop. People remember this is the thing which keeps open the border between Northern and Southern Ireland irrespective of what happens to Brexit at the end of the day. Now as it turns out what she came back with doesn't look of it's going to fly. Um, it's been described already as being potentially not legally binding. So in a nutshell, what it means is that then when we get to this vote this evening, what Parliament will be voting on is essentially exactly the same proposals that Mrs May put forward back in January time. And if people remember, that was when she lost that vote by a record 230. So as things stand at the moment, um, it looks as if she's going to lose that vote. Now, that has a number of implications. One, if she gets hammered in it again, that could be the end of Mrs May as prime minister. Um, it could lead to another general election. But as things are currently written down, it would lead to a second vote then on Wednesday, which would be what you were talking about. It would actually be a vote on does UK Parliament want a no deal Brexit? And that will almost certainly be rejected. And if that's the case, then we have the third vote on Thursday, and that's going to ask Parliament whether they want to see an extension um, to the Brexit date itself, perhaps of two or three months. We don't know the precise word. Well, where did that March 29 date originally come from? Well, that originally was the, the two-year agreement um, from the time when the referendum actually took place, or sorry, so from, from when it, the UK actually applied to leave the EU. So we had the referendum back in, what, the middle of 2016. Um, the UK actually put forward its request to, to leave the EU on March the 29th, or where are we, 2017. So, that, so the March the 29th this year will be the two-year period. So that was kind of laid down in the statutes. And and that was those were statutes that Parliament made. Well, it's, it's all part and parcel of being part of the EU. So if you want to leave the EU, effectively, you have to give them two years' notice. And the EU, they're showing patience. They want the UK, and I guess uh, they want all this to. They uh, are, but I think, you know, to be honest, I mean, what the EU really think of what's going on at the moment, it probably isn't printable. I think yeah, they are so fed up with, you know, they were told ages ago, well, look, you know, I can get this deal through Parliament. And so if you're happy with it, all, all done deal. And uh -huh. ever since then, I think it's gone backwards. So I think if Mrs. May loses the deal tonight and who knows, something may happen and it actually goes through, in which case that's fine. We come out of you know, Brexit happens on the 29th of March. The, um, Everything will go through as currently agreed and we'll have this transition period through to the end of next year. Um, if that happens, then everyone's going to be quite happy about it, albeit very surprised. But it, 
looks if that won't happen, in which case, no, the EU is going to be scratching its head as to what on the earth we're supposed to do next. Well, now you've been talking about uh, in the UK, the effects of Brexit disrupting business investment. I think you mentioned even consumer uh, spending. Um, how, what has it done to continental Europe? Do you see any Brexit effects there? Yeah, I think definitely we're seeing increasing Brexit effects. So I think you know, it's taken a while to feed through. But I suppose you know, one of the classic examples, if you look at uh, the German auto industry, the UK market is by far and away one of their most important export markets for, for, you know, for the likes of VW, BMW and so on. And they've been hit pretty hard by the fact that you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about what they're going to do in terms of whether they're going to build the plants. And the icon of is the, the mini, mini motor car over here, which is built in the UK, BMW now talking about shifting that back into possibly the Netherlands, part possibly built in Germany. Uh, we've seen, you know, away from Europe, the likes of Nissan and Honda talking about either not making new models they were planning to, or even closing down major plants in the UK if you know if the Brexit deal doesn't go through as they want. So we're starting to see it, you know, have an impact now. What about um, actual economic numbers, uh, capital investment, those kinds of things? We're starting to see it. I think it's interesting when you look at, and again, I suppose because it's been perhaps a slower reaction in Europe because it's, you know, the main focus has been what's it going to do to the UK. But if you look at, you know, the classic, the soft surveys, the business, and to some extent, the consumer surveys, particularly the likes of the PMIs, when you look at, you know, some of the anecdotal evidence, a lot of it now is quoting about Brexit uncertainty. Because at the end of the day, you know, firms don't know what they should be doing. Should they continue to be investing with a view to export into the UK? Uh-huh. Are new markets, whatever. And even when some of the consumer confidence surveys now, you know, the Brexit uncertainty issue quite often crops up because people are worried about, is it going to impact our job? Okay, let, let, I want to play the devil's advocate here when yeah, it comes do. to those soft surveys. Um, uh, it, I, is it right that the European PMIs uh, have been actually coming back a little bit so far this year? Well, only, only very fractionally. I'm talking about the number. I'm yeah, yeah the, um, the, the, headline, the headline number itself. Okay, okay yeah, so what I'm talking about is the selection by the editors of the commentary. And if they want to sell, if they want to get prominence in their report, they can select out issues that they know people will be sensitive to. So is this an empirical? And these soft data, we don't know. They don't tell you what their sample size is. There's a lot of mysteries. And I think... Um, Looking at their quote rundown is one of those mysteries. What do you think about that? Um, well, I think, to be honest, that probably within Europe, rightly or wrongly, the PMIs have always been perhaps more highly regarded, at least to some extent, I think, than, than perhaps on your side of the pond. To the extent that I'll say that if you look at when either the ECB or the Bank of England or indeed any of the other European central banks not involved in the ECB talk about international developments, so invariably mention what's happening to the, you know, the global PMI, the JP Morgan market global PMI. And when they're talking about domestic, domestic developments, they'll virtually always talk about the latest domestic PMIs as well. So over here, they do carry a lot of weight. Um, now, how, how these individual products are sold by the marketers themselves, well, you know, that, that's perhaps a different issue. But I think on the whole, um, not necessarily on a short-term basis, but by and large, uh, you know, the PMIs here have actually had a pretty good track record as to what's going on. It's not perfect yeah, but, every quarter. But, yeah. but that's the number, right? <laughs> uh, do you see that the commentary is maybe playing for sound bites? Possibly, but uh, to be honest, most of the commentary tends to be fairly structured. And I've got to say, you know, when it comes to Brexit, 
it's I wouldn't say it's done in such an outlandish mode as to make people jump up and down about it. It does <laughs> seem to say that, you know, pe- you know, company company replies suggest that Brexit is becoming increasing concern for mm-hmm. you know, manufacturers or services, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. I guess I'm just used to looking at the PMIs over here because rightly or wrongly, you know, financial markets in particular do tend to react to them quite sharply. Okay, what else should we be mentioning before we go? Um, I suppose since we're talking about quickly about the global economy, I should mention Australian GDP. Uh, we had their latest figure, which was the weakest uh, fourth quarter, their weakest quarter on quarter number since the middle of 2016. So again, that fits in with the general slowdown. And also we had some pretty trade numbers out of China last week as well, uh, which showed a plunge in exports. They were down about 21% on the month from a year ago uh, for January, which again is going to fuel concerns about you know global economic slowdown. So it may or may not be the case that the recent data are perhaps somewhat overstating it, but there's a lot around at the moment to suggest that now where the economy is headed currently is certainly on a flatter trajectory than it was than most people are expecting not too many months ago. Um, what else? Any other numbers out of your side of the world, Mark? We look at retail sales you say you got this week. Yeah, well, I already mentioned that they were a, a, a mess, a huge no, I volatility. I was wondering what's expected. Oh, a relative what was uh, expected, I guess. Uh, it. You know, it probably, you know, uh, a rebound was expected, a solid rebound, and I guess that's what we got. Um, but the numbers, they're just too uh, uh, too volatile to uh, rely on. And we also have to remember for retail sales that December is an unusually strong, by far the strongest yeah. month, and January is by far the lightest month. And the states, we make a month-to-month comparison. So to do that, you have to have adjustments bring down December, and you have to have adjustments lift January. Very kind of artificial. But uh, that's the game, and, uh, and I'm not sure it, it always works. Uh, I think things that really have to play out. But we have seen very weak uh, vehicle sales so far this year. And uh, the uh, Red Book uh, uh, report, which tracks um, chain stores, their sample has been clearly showing uh, slowing. So there's a lot of uh, uncertainty right now about the consumer, and it used to be that we were confident that the employment, if if payrolls remain strong, then whatever month-to-month swings we get in consumer spending, it really doesn't matter because the consumer is healthy. But uh, that may not be – we we can't be so sure after the uh, February uh, employment report. Fair enough. I'll tell you what, I reckon the March employment report is going to be an interesting one. Um, okay, well, that's it then. Thank you um, very much for listening, as always, on behalf of Mark and myself. Um, I'm off now to look for some more reliable seasonal adjustment factors, but whether, <laughs> whether successful or not, we'll both be back next week. Bye for now. Econoday has provided value for the investment industry for over 25 years, amassing a comprehensive, machine-readable database of global market events. Our exceptional data set consists of consensus, actual reported and revised numbers of economic events. Algorithmic trading firms, global banks, asset managers, hedge funds and AI technology firms are leveraging Econoday's unique historical data set to fuel their propriety trading models and support their research and compliance teams. Go to www.econoday.com and follow at Econoday on Twitter to learn more.